this whole idea of like having something to drink before dinner that not only stimulates the appetite, but, uh, and there's some science behind that as well, but kind of sets the mood and the tone. And at this time, people, you know, all, all the great cities of Europe had been built with these big promenades and people wanted to hang out and be seen and drink something pretty in a glass that was bitter and invigorating. And, and that's kind of where all this came from. From StudioPod Media, this is the Muddler Podcast. The Muddler exists to tell stories behind your favorite cocktail bars. Cocktail bars become beloved by their patrons for many different reasons. Everything from the vibe, friendly service, convenient location, great music, and of course, the delicious, well-crafted cocktails. But each bar has its own unique story, why it exists and how it came to be, as well as the cocktails made and who actually serves them. I'm TJ Bonaventura, and I'm the host of The Muddler. On each episode, we'll sit down with the owners and bar managers behind some of the most innovative and forward-thinking bars around. Each season will center around cocktail bars in a specific city. Up first, San Francisco. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Golden Rule Spirits. So Golden Rule Spirits is a producer of two canned cocktails, the Old Fashioned and the Margarita. I know what you're thinking, canned cocktails, not really my thing, but I'm telling you guys, if you like a good crafted cocktail, you're going to love these drinks. They're perfect for going to the golf course, for bringing them on the road, vacation, camping, and they are dangerously good. They're about the quarter size of a normal can. You pop these bad boys open, you throw them over ice, and you're good to go. So again, Golden Rule Spirits, goldenrulespirits.com, at Golden Rule Spirits on IG. Check them out. San Francisco's Richmond District is a much different neighborhood than the ones we've covered thus far on the Muddler. Surrounded on three sides by Parkland and the Pacific Ocean, the Richmond provides incredibly easy access to San Francisco's gorgeous outlets for nature. It's constantly foggy year-round thanks to the marine layer effect prevalent in the area. And most relevant to this podcast, it's a relatively quiet area. The Richmond is a family-oriented district filled with residents who have called San Francisco home for generations as compared to the transplant-rich neighborhoods throughout much of the rest of the city. Culturally, it's most well-known for the top-notch multicultural restaurants that populate Balboa, Geary, and Clement Streets. The Richmond's population definitely eats well. On the other side of the coin, the Richmond's bar scene is an interesting one. Many of the neighborhoods we've visited thus far have been part of what's known as San Francisco's cocktail renaissance that started in the mid-2000s. This was a time when, by and large, SF cocktail bars took creative steps forward and attempted to move beyond your standard well drinks like a gin and tonic, and developed focused themes and drinks that took many iterations to nail. This explosion of mixology and cocktail development led to rich craft cocktail options that populate the city today. The Richmond, charmingly, has not necessarily set the course for the cocktail revolution in San Francisco. Its bar scene, on the whole, is markedly more subtle and less trendy than other regions in the city. Fitting with the more quiet, restaurant-centric vibe of the area, the Richmond's bars are humble. There are a lot of dive bars, the types of places where you might order a shot and a beer from a familiar face and catch a few innings of the Giants game before or after dinner. In founding High Treason, its owners John Vuong and Michael Ireland were met with a fun challenge, matching the Richmond's laid-back vibe while also providing high-end wine bar experience. 
Apologies to our Sonoma and Napa-based listeners, but let's face it, the wine industry is many things, but it's not famously known for its casual subtleties and lack of pretension. But High Treason was determined to buck that stereotype. Kudos to the team because they really nailed it. High Treason meets all the expectations that come with being a neighborhood wine bar. They provide world-class wines at a more reasonable price point than you might expect. The bar spins punk and hip-hop records from a turntable that leads to a cozy, comfortable vibe. The entire staff is friendly and eager to turn customers into regulars. It's the perfect spot for a drink before or after dinner at any of the restaurants the Richmond has to offer. We sat down with High Treason's Justin Myers, the cocktail program and marketing manager for the bar. We start off by talking with him a little bit about how the bar got its name. Do you know the history of the name? Because I think the name's, I think it's great. And it's not something that you would associate with a wine bar per se. So right, right. curious to know like where the background of that comes from. Yeah. So we basically it's, it's like serving the wines that we do are kind of, there's kind of a lot of aspects to it, but it's like the wines that we serve are, are kind of often things that you wouldn't find at like a neighborhood wine bar. It's like you'd only have access to those if you're at a Michelin star restaurant. And so it's kind of like, ah, oh, this is high treason. I can't believe you're serving like that this here, you know? So, but yeah, then there's a lot of other kinds of things. It's like, we kind of put the legwork in to, to bring really cool stuff. So like, if you have a kind of a, a big name house in France, like mm-hmm. a, like a big, um, we're often the bottles of like, a, like a big crew Burgundy or something, where you know you're getting bottles of wine for several hundreds of dollars often those same winemakers have like an entry level wine that's you know just as good quality as their other wines but you know we can serve it by the glass mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the 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 stuff that we look for and so yeah does, does that make sense yeah of course yeah so it's just almost just like you're you're taking what should be, you know, only found at like very, very fine dining restaurants, but taking it in more of a neighborhoody, down to earth, you know, comfortable place without like all the uptiness that you would get at those fine dining. Exactly. So exactly. it's almost like stealing them. Yeah, for sure. That yeah. makes a ton of sense. <laughs> and then because of because our owners, you know, were very much entrenched in that world of fine dining, that you know, they're that's where their whole network is. So they're able to kind of like get these allocations of stuff because, you know, they were worked with all these people that were used to it. But yeah, so it's kind of what we do. That's awesome. You talked a little bit about the the people. Mm-hmm. I want to, I kind of want to double down there a little bit. So like, cause this is a very unique, you know, location being in the inner Richmond, cause it is a little bit more residential where, mm-hmm. you know, other places that we have done recordings or featured, you know, they're kind of more in like the city city, if if you will, proper, not to say this isn't, but you, you know what I mean? It's yeah, more absolutely. condensed areas. So like, are you finding that it's more families? Is it more just like locals? Are you getting, you know, new people coming in? Like, what is that like disparity? Like, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of the people live kind of in Richmond sunset, I would say. We have a wine club and many of our wine club members just live, you know, I mean, th- there's one guy who lives literally half a block away. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's very, it's, it's very family oriented place. One of my favorite things when we were open before the pandemic was, uh, I used to call it like stroller happy hour. Mm-hmm. I loved it. 
the you know the parents would come. So both of our owners have they each have two kids. So it's it's very much a family oriented place, family oriented neighborhood. We'd have parents come in with the kids after work, have a couple glasses of wine. It's like it's just it's just wonderful, and it feels that way. And yeah, the Richmond is, you know, we're close to the parks, and there's you know there's all these great businesses just in this neighborhood. Like we have Green Apple Bookstore and and Tantrum, which is like a, a children's store, and the farmer's market on Sunday was just, just a couple blocks away. And so, yeah, it's very, it's definitely like a, a bar that people come to who like live here in the neighborhood, you know, of course get people from out of town. It's a little bit of a kind of an industry destination spot too, um, just because of it's the pedigree of the place and, you know, industry folks know the, the kind of wines that we, like the nerdy wines that we have, like, oh, and they want to come try those things. But, yeah, it's it's definitely very much a, a neighborhood family kind of place. You know, I think bars that are closer to downtown are going to get much more tourists. It's harder for tourists to kind of find the Richmond. I think unless you're like, really, you know, when I travel, I just go to eat and drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. people like that are going to find their way to this neighborhood because there's so many good restaurants on this street too. But, but yeah, very much a kind of a neighborhood family vibe Mm -hmm. which is i love it because i live in this neighborhood too i'm like a five minute walk from here and so it's it's really wonderful to just like you know see my regulars at the grocery store and at the farmer's market and it's at the park so it's it's really cool and like you said you were you know you used to come here before you started working here yeah exactly exactly during the pandemic the team had to make pivots as every single bar and restaurant did in order to stay open the crew behind High Treason needed to make tough decisions in order to carry on with the business. But in executing these shifts, it became more clear than ever that serving the neighborhood and the locals, who are their most prized customers, was always of the utmost importance. The business changes were made with a careful eye towards staying in touch with their community, providing goods and services that allowed them to be present for the people who had sustained them up until COVID hit. We've always had a, a retail license here. So it's called an on-off sale license. So we sell, you know, you can come here and have a drink, but you can also buy like a, a wine shop. That's always been part of our business, but we never really needed to use it before the pandemic. And mm-hmm. then suddenly the pandemic happens and it's the only thing that we can do. Mm-hmm. So High Treason then stayed open. We stayed open. We're also very fortunate that we have this nice big window that faces the sidewalk mm-hmm. that we could open. Because at that time, we, you know, we weren't letting anybody inside. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it was basically the two owners, you know, trading off days and just selling bottles of wine out of the window, which people had, a, I think, early on in the lockdown that that kind of worked because people still kind of knew we were here and everyone was stocking up at that point. So, you know, we did OK like that first month or so, but then you know, everything started to change and things tapered, tapered off a little bit. And around September, it's like, I realized like, okay, we got to start doing something different. Cause I, you know, I didn't want this bar to go away. So many businesses have gone out of business. And so I thought like, we got to do something different here. My degree is actually in journalism. And so I, I haven't had a lot of experience with kind of marketing and I had all these ideas so I came back in September and sort of kind of pivoted the business more to like a retail business, an online retail business. We didn't have an online store before. We didn't have a newsletter. We had very minimal social media. 
we didn't really need it. We were just operating as like a bar restaurant and people would come, you know, the way that they would normally find any restaurant. And it was, it was, it was okay. But yeah, we, so we, we kind of implemented all these different things. I learned about all, all these different ways of doing retail, like wine packages and, you know, collaborations with different brands. One of the things that we did was a, a a partnership with Noise Records. It's a record store in the Outer Richmond. So his store was was closed for a long time, and so we're um, like he brought a rack over, filled the records, and so we we sell like records for Noise here, and that's that's a cool thing that we're gonna. That's just gonna be a long term thing now. We're like a so so you're gonna be selling records out of High Trees and yeah. for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, we've awesome. got a rack and people can browse records and you know because we, we, we play records, so I figured we should, we should sell records. So let's just I just want to repeat this because this is a pretty unique story in terms of so far everyone that we chatted with. So before the pandemic, you guys were primarily a wine and and beer shop. Yeah, and basically like a, a beer and wine bar. And then we we always had a retail component, but it was it was like, you know, we'd sell a few bottles a month, and it was not really we, we didn't need to we didn't have to we didn't have to lean on that. So then you then you with the pandemic you had to shift completely the other direction of being only retail. Exactly. You developed an online commerce store where people can can buy. I'm sure there was merch in there too. Potentially, you developed a whole new social aspect to it, and you mentioned a newsletter as well. Yeah, I mentioned I was a, a I have a journalism degree. I'm a writer, and I thought like we can't have people in our space, and it's really hard to like, because you know we're used to having people sit at the bar and we get to know them and we chat with them and they come back and we see them you know at least once or twice a week with some of our regulars here, but we just couldn't have that kind of relationship with them. You know, buying a bottle to to go on the sidewalk. So I thought, well, we need to figure out a way how how we can stay connected to our regulars. And the newsletter, you know, if, if we're talking about online media, I think your inbox is a very kind of intimate space, mm-hmm. you know, because everything had to had to go online during the pandemic mm-hmm. with Zoom and everything. And so I'm, I had to figure out how to, you know, how to bring that kind of high treason feeling and level of service and, and engagement to an online space. And the newsletter was a great way to do that. And you know, the, the voice that I created, it, the newsletter is in my voice. I write from my voice. And, you know, it's still the very, like, casual, neighborhood-friendly mm-hmm. kind of vibe, like, not-too-serious kind of kind of vibe that you get in your inbox. We also started doing online classes because we used to do a bunch of tasting events here where we'd uh, we'd, be, we'd have, like, um, a winemaker come in or we'd feature a certain region or something. We You know, we'd get, like, a an allocation of some special wines and then Michael Arona would, would sort of host a, it was like a ticketed event. It came with like four tastings or something. So we, we started doing the treason Academy. We mm-hmm. called it where just kind of, you, you'd pick up four little, we'd bottle like four little samples of wine for you to take home. And then it'd be like an online class. Cause that was a you know, people come here cause they like to see us too. They, 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 they know us, they, they want to see us and hang out with us. So that was kind of the only way we could, you know, do that for a long time because mm-hmm. people missed us. They would always ask, you know, there would usually only be one of us here because we couldn't afford to pay mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> more than one person during the pandemic. But yeah, people come by and then they'd be like, oh, is, is Michael here? Is John here? Is Justin here? And then, you know, if we're not, if we're not here, it's, it's a little sad because they mm-hmm. wanted to see us. And they're used to just being able to walk in anytime and then say hi to us and we mm-hmm. can have a conversation, catch up. But 
so yeah the, the the classes the newsletter and then i did kind of much more social media uh we, we were doing kind of like you know a couple posts a week or something but started doing posts every day just kind of sharing new stuff that we had and yeah just kind of staying connected with people because we couldn't physically connect with them we're bringing in joey to talk about the old-fashioned golden rule spirits mm. joey let's talk about your experience with this old-fashioned and just old fashions in general okay yeah i think tj one one insight that is hitting me as i'm drinking this old-fashioned from our friends at golden rule spirits is that these guys i have to give them some credit here they're not trying to approximate a margarita or an old-fashioned with these beverages. They are trying to give you the real deal in a can. I think it's difficult to make an old-fashioned, I'll be honest. And it's really hard to make one at home after you go to your favorite cocktail joint, maybe one that we're listening to right now on the muddler. Maybe. And what you're alluding to and what you're saying is Golden Rule has done a very good job of perfecting this recipe. I know they've gone through many, many iterations to make sure that one, it's not too cut with water, or not too watered down, or it's you know not too sugary, which I think is something that's very common with canned cocktails these days. So if you are trying to impress somebody, maybe it's your family, maybe it's a significant other, maybe it's you're just by yourself with your dog. Maybe, maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's yourself. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're just sitting in the mirror and you're like, no, I need to impress myself today. I need a little pick-me-up. And this will pick you up. This that will. is for sure. It will. This one is 79 proof. It's no joke. That's the old fashioned. So, if you want to learn more about the old fashioned and how you can really improve yourself while drinking with yourself in front of yourself, <laughs> go to goldenrulespirits.com at goldenrulespirits on Instagram. First and foremost, a wine bar. High Treason does not have a license to serve hard alcohol, but that doesn't keep them from having a cocktail program. The overarching theme behind the bar's concept for its cocktails is that it's an aperitif cocktail. The aperitif is defined as an alcoholic drink taken before a meal to stimulate the appetite. And that's exactly what the bar's cocktails do. They're not meant to overwhelm in their alcohol content or dominate the palate. Instead, they're typically lower in alcohol and aim to guide your digestion before you sit for a meal. Typically, aperitif cocktails are drier to the taste and colorful to the eye. Some of the most common elements of aperitif cocktails are vermouth, Campari, sherry, amaro, and sparkling wines. Pick up our conversation with Justin as he tells us about the cocktail menu that he's responsible for at the bar. So we, as we mentioned, are beer and wine bar. That means our license doesn't allow us to serve distilled spirits. So uh, when I, because I, I actually come from a cocktail background. I don't come from a wine background. I started working in cocktail bars. I used to work at the Interval over in Fort Mason. So kind of through my experience of working at cocktail bars, I learned about all of these wine-based cocktails. And there's a, there's a long history of, of wine-based cocktails. And a lot of them you might be familiar with, you know, there's the, there's the much maligned uh, white wine spritzer that, you know, <laughs> our grandparents' generation w w was very popular. And yeah, there's just, uh, you know, the spritz, the bamboo that we're drinking now. And these, these are all cocktails are based on wine. A lot of times you'll see them on menus as uh, low ABV cocktails or loophole cocktails are called sometimes because you, it's the loopholes you can serve a cocktail with a beer and wine license. I've never liked those terms for them because it kind of implies that there's there's something less. But they're very much cocktails 
and just because they're lower alcohol, like doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting less bang for your buck. It's, you know, it's still all the flavor. And honestly, sometimes you don't want to like pound six old fashions, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then the idea of the aperitif is, is a really uh, fascinating subject. It's this kind of culture and aesthetic and kind of a feeling almost that came, that came out of Europe sort of in the years leading up to, to World War One, which kind of ruined everything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's this whole idea of like having something to drink before dinner that not only stimulates the appetite, but, uh, and there's some science behind that as well, but kind of sets the mood and the tone. And at this time people, you know, all, all the great cities of Europe had been built with these big promenades and people wanted to hang out and be seen and drink something pretty in a glass that was bitter and invigorating mm -hmm. and and that's kind of where all this came from and it's sort of the category that i'm most fascinated with in cocktails and i think now after the pandemic we're we're in a perfect place for this style of cocktail you know the weather's pretty nice in the bay area so mm -hmm. you can be outside mm -hmm. although the richmond is it's usually um, gray <laughs> and foggy and cold but um <laughs> also like uh we have all these great parklets outside now you know, all these bars have have these lovely places. You know, if you go to Europe, everyone's sitting outside drinking. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's it's lovely. And now we can do that here. The alcohol laws have changed mm -hmm. during the pandemic. So you can take cocktails to go. We're just really set up well. And like, if you follow drinking trends over the past kind of 10 years, we've sort of shifted away from like, you know, buttery nipple shots to, you know, lighter things, you know, lighter beers, lighter styles of wine and lighter cocktails so it's kind of a great thing it's the only way that we can do cocktails here but there's such a rich history of these kind these kinds of drinks justin was kind enough to pour us a round of the bamboo one of the four cocktails that currently is on the drink menu so we're drinking what's called the bamboo mm -hmm. this is something that you've developed for high treason right i put together this this recipe the bamboo is actually a very old cocktail okay it was invented by a German bartender who was actually living in San Francisco for a long time. Mm -hmm. His name was Louis Eppinger. And after he lived in San Francisco, he worked at the uh, Grand Hotel in Yokohama, Japan. And this cocktail became very popular there. And this is the kind of the mid to late 1800s. So it's the cocktail is, is equal parts with dry sherry and uh, dry vermouth. And then there's a dash of Angostura and orange bitters. That's it. And it as well, yeah. So there's not even there's not even a wine in this. Yeah. Uh, well, like a sherry. So sherry and vermouth are are Our type. Yeah. Are wines actually? Um, that that's kind of a that's kind of a thing. And again, because aperitifs and are are very much a European thing. Like we were lucky in the Bay Area to have a lot more exposure to things like vermouth and sherry, and a lot of people that are really excited about those things. But still, it's not like um, people are not familiar with it because our our experience is you know from the dark ages of the 80s where vermouth was gross and yeah. sherry was like that sweet thing that your grandma drank yeah, exactly um, so we don't we don't have a lot it's totally understandable that people have these associations my exposure to vermouth i took a trip to spain I was in barcelona and i went to with a, with a few group of friends we went to a place in the, and I believe it was in the Gothic Quarter, mm -hmm. and it was a vermouth only restaurant and bar. Yeah. They didn't serve anything else but vermouth. And I was like, well, this is going to be 
the like least interesting drink situation I'm ever in because vermouth is vermouth. And that could not be further from the case. Oh, yeah. It was to this day one of my favorite restaurants and favorite experiences I had because it paired well with everything that we were eating. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be paired with, you know, with more like steaks and it could be paired with, you know, with seafood. But the different types of not only aromas, the, the the flavors, just the boldness of it could be, you know, anywhere from like a very, very sweet to a very, very almost like bitterish type experience, which blew my mind. And you just drink it straight with a couple olives and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Vermouth, uh, actually, I got into vermouth originally when I worked at the Interval and we actually had a menu section that was just called Vermouth is Delicious. And it was, and we served it like some of those, the Spanish uh, vermouth we served just like that on ice with some olives and some of it, some of the things we served, you know, just in a glass or, you know, with soda water. Vermouth is the reason why a lot of Americans have had a bad experience with vermouth is because people didn't understand it. And I should back up. Basically, every time you ask the question, why is drinking in America different than other places in the world? The answer is always prohibition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That yep. essentially yep. just ruined everything, and we're just now starting to come out of that. So for a long time, people, you know, I mean, prohibition sort of killed drinking culture, and then yeah. people stopped drinking vermouth, and then people didn't know what it was anymore, and then people didn't treat it right. Vermouth is wine. It's wine-based. It's fortified and then flavored with herbs and botanicals, and depending on the style, sometimes sweet and sometimes not. But it's wine. You wouldn't leave a bottle of Chardonnay in your drink well with a pour spout in it for six months and expect it to taste good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know? So you have to treat it like wine. You, you know, you always keep your vermouth in the fridge and, you know, buy small bottles or, you know, drink it quickly. I mean, I can't. I buy a large bottle because I can't stop drinking it when it's at home. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, that's. I think that's a. that's mainly the reason that people have a, a negative association with it is just because we've we've had such a bad experience with it here but now we're starting to understand it starting to have access to more vermouth people are importing vermouth. there's a lot of local local producers that are starting to make vermouth mm-hmm. and, and other fortified wines in in the united states a lot in california one interesting aspect of the physical layout of high treason is that it's set up just to be a wine bar not to have multiple bartenders preparing and mixing drinks concurrently Typically at cocktail bars, you'll find multiple wells where bartenders can set up their stations and properly mix drinks, but those don't exist at high treason. There's just a long bar with plenty of sitting where patrons can have their wines, beers, and drinks poured for them. With that obviously comes some limitations, but it allowed Justin to learn a lot about the process of batching and bottling aperitif drinks. I had to figure out how can we serve cocktails here because we're not going to build a well. You know, we're not we're not going to do that. Um, so the reason why the bamboo is on the menu is actually when the bamboo was popular in Japan, in Yokohama, it got so popular that they started, they actually started bottling it. And now we're actually seeing this. We're seeing like, the, it's called the RTD category in the, it's very boring, ready to drink. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing a lot more of this. You're seeing canned cocktails. You're yep. seeing bottled Negronis and stuff. Yeah, our uh, our sponsor actually, Golden Rule Spirits. That's exactly what they are. Yeah, and they have they have a margarita and they have a uh, an old fashioned, very delicious. But yeah, you're, we're seeing to see we're starting to see that a lot more. Right. So that's uh, you saw when I poured this for you. I literally opened a bottle and poured it out. Um, so I do all the work beforehand of blending the ingredients. And I actually one thing that people don't think of uh, when they think of the cocktail. So I said this is vermouth. 
sherry and two kinds of bitters. But it also has water because when you stir this cocktail, would you would normally stir it over ice and then strain it into the glass, like like you would make a Manhattan or a martini or something. When you stir a cocktail on ice, not only are you chilling it, but you're adding water. The ice is melting, which is adding dilution, and that's an important part of cocktails. You can take you can take a martini and make a martini that way, and then make a martini. And just put it in the freezer until it gets to the same temperature, right? It tastes very different. I mean, you might like one more than the other. I particularly like the one that had some dilution, but it's different. So I actually add a little bit of water. So I make these in one liter batches, and I part of the recipe is I add just you know water to it, and then we keep it chilled, and you know our servers just pour it in a glass as they would any bottle of wine. So the service is identical to what our wine service was. You know, it's a different glass <laughs> and I have to spend, you know, 30 minutes or so making these batches, but that's it. And we're able to, we're able to serve that. So you said you had four, you used to have six. Like, how are you thinking about coming up with new ones? Do you feel like you're a little bit more restricted because you can't use spirits or do you feel like it's more of a a personal challenge to come up with something that you have to pre-batch that will still taste, you know, fucking amazing when someone comes to a wine bar and wants something different than, you know, just a, a standard glass of wine. Yeah, there's a couple different angles to that. As far as batching, some cocktails, especially cocktails like this, um, that are sort of like this equal parts, like strong and bitter flavors, they actually get better after you batch them because all the ingredients kind of like get a little more integrated. When I was at the interval, we used to serve, you know, the, the Negroni is a very popular cocktail. So we started batching the Negroni um, just for ease of service. Uh, Negroni is equal parts, uh, vermouth, Campari, and gin. So we would just put equal parts in a liter bottle and then, you know, measure out three ounces or whatever we were serving. And that was it, you know, much faster service. But it tasted better that way. We, we did side-by-side tastings and like the one that sat together like it it was more integrated it was a better tasting cocktail and the same is true for the bamboo it just keeps getting better you know it has a it has a lifespan but the one thing is like these are fortified wine sherry and vermouth are both fortified wines so they they're made to like last, last a little, a little bit longer. Yeah. you know you if you keep it in the fridge with the bottle closed it's it, it lasts about a month before i notice like any significant and usually we go through it faster than that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not it's not an issue. But yeah, it, it sort of has this lifespan where it starts to taste better, you know, after a few days and then kind of just it's it's totally fine. It tastes great. And usually by the time it wouldn't be tasting good anymore, we've already gone through the bottle. Because that's why I make only one liter batches mm-hmm. at a time. Yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer about batching. But how how I come up with the cocktails is um as I mentioned, there, there's a rich history of aperitif cocktails. I always like to tell people this quote. It's actually a quote from the Bible, Ecclesiastes. I'm not trying to get religious here, but the quote is, there's nothing new under the sun. That's kind of what I think about when I make cocktails is like so many talented people throughout history (laughs) have made cocktails. I, I don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? Like there's, if I want to do something, someone else has already done it and maybe I need to adapt it to our service here. But there's very little that I'm doing that's new. Mostly what I'm doing is like finding a formula that works and adapting it to us and sort of creating a, a menu that has a, 
enough variety. So the original menu had um, the focus was kind of like wine-based cocktails from around the world and throughout history. So we were actually serving a different cocktail that's very similar to this called the Adonis, which is sweet vermouth instead of dry vermouth. And that was from New York in the late 1800s. We had a white port and tonic, which is very popular in, in Portugal. I always have some kind of spritz. Um, you've probably heard of the Aperol spritz. That's kind of the most ubiquitous. But um, there's plenty of wine-based products that are in the like Italian bitter category. So I always had some kind of spritz which is very easy to assemble, you know, that's, you, you kind of just build it in the glass with the ingredients and the sparkling water and the, and the sparkling wine. I had a cocktail called the Rebujito, which is from Spain, from kind of the sherry region of Spain in the southwest. And that's, uh, that's just equal parts dry sherry and uh, Sprite or 7-Up. Uh, it sounds weird. It's absolutely delicious mm. <laughs> and super simple to make, you know. So, yeah, I had this create, we have like this, um, kind of prep sink there's, there's a lot of sinks in this bar it's kind of funny <laughs> um, but there was this one sink where I, I could just set up like a an ice bucket there and I, ma- I sort of just made a little cocktail station kind of in our like kitchen pass-through area so we, we could just go there and there was a little fridge under there and we had everything we need to assemble these just very simple kind of like equal parts cocktail over ice sort of things. So it was either it was either kind of a cocktail that's built over ice or one of these pre-batched cocktails where you're literally just pouring it into a glass. So yeah, I just kind of have a variety. It's all very much like aperitif style cocktails because that's just sort of the nature of wine-based cocktails. They're just they're just lighter in general. But yeah, I just wanted to have a kind of a different thing and I kind of changed it with the seasons. You know, I had this I had the this spritz in the winter time that had like this blood orange aperitif and it used it used a lambrusco as the sparkling wine so it was a little oh, interesting a little richer and then i put a a sprig of like rosemary as mm. the garnish so you get that aroma it's a little more like a like a christmas spritz yeah. if you will <laughs> all right last question here this is the last call segment okay so this segment is you know what is the crazy most crazy outrageous interesting just story that our audience would want to hear that you've experienced from something that happened in a bar that you worked at or something that happened here at High Treason, just something that everyone's sharing. We, everyone's had a little bit different of a, of a story and everything's a little bit out there, but that's your setup. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story that happened here. It's probably one of my favorite stories. I had mentioned that we were talking earlier about how this is kind of a very family-oriented place and we have like baby stroller happy hour we used to anyway i hope it comes back because i love it and the reason this is a big reason why I, I like fell in love with the baby stroller time is because uh i was working in the bars maybe around five and there was maybe like uh three or four sets of parents in the bar sitting at the bar everyone's having a great time so we kind of have like a low bar that you that you sit at uh, it's, it's a little bit lower than than kind of like a in a cocktail bar and then everyone's seated on kind of lower stools so people were sitting at the bar i have my back facing the bar because i'm putting something into the the pos and uh all of a sudden this like toddler runs into me so he he's like escaped his parents and come around the the side of the bar and just like bumps into me and he looks up and he's got this big smile on his face and I'm like, ha! <laughs> and he's got a little sippy cup, right? 
And his dad comes around to, to pick him up. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, don't worry about it, man. It's fine. <laughs> it's great. And he picks up his, this, his child and sort of turns him towards the bar. And the, the little kid, he just sticks out his sippy cup to all the people at the bar. And everybody, like, toasts him all the way down because I was all the way at the far end of the bar and he had to walk all the way back to the end and so everybody sitting at the bar just like <laughs> clinks their wine glass with this little sippy cup that's adorable <laughs> it's such a cute memory that's good that, that, sh- that gives a good flavor of, of what high treason is the totally. type of people you have here the, totally just that all of it is just speaks neighborhood like there you go <laughs> it's neighborhood bar I love that story before we go Justin thank you for the time again what about where can people find High Treason? You know, I know you mentioned there's a, a newsletter there. They can, you know, buy bottles online now. Like just where can people yeah, find you guys? Uh, so we're here on Clement Street at Clement and 6th Avenue in the inner Richmond. And we're opening indoors again very soon. So come come see us. And then you can, you can find everything at hightreasonsf.com. You can sign up. For our newsletter, you can sign up for the newsletter at the bottom of every page. You can find our online store, info about our wine club, and all the classes and events we're going to have coming up. But yeah, we can't wait to see everybody again. Check us out online. And you can follow us on all the social media. All that's on the website as well. HighTreasonSF.com. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. That wraps up our time at High Treason, which once again is located at Clement and 6th Avenue in the Richmond. Thanks so much again for Justin and the team for having us in. On our ninth episode, we're popping back over to the marina to visit one of the best restaurants in the area. We'll be recording from Mamanoko and sitting down with our bar manager, Tim Cosgrove. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. The Muddler is a Studio Pod Media original podcast. I'm your host, TJ Bonaventura. Our writer is Joey Mezzatesta. Editing and music provided by Notalap. For more information, make sure you subscribe and rate us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go to themudlerpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at themudlerpodcast.com.